Hello, this is Stephanie Preisner and you are listening to Basically, the podcast. Welcome. In this week's episode, we talk to Professor Luke O'Neill. Luke is an immunologist. And for those of you who don't know what that is, I learned about four and a half minutes ago. So let me enlighten you. An immunologist is a type of biologist that studies the immune system, which is basically the weapon that humans have to fight infections. In this strange new world of viruses and vaccines, pandemics and PPE, it's easy to get confused. So I chatted to Luke about the past, present and future of this virus. I discussed with him why COVID-19 is not the Beyonce of viruses, and I get his expert opinion on when we can all leave our houses and go to a Kaylee. So, Luke, you know the way people like Eddie Hobbs and Dave McWilliams, they're economists, and they say that they can predict big recessions and stuff coming down the line. As a scientist, can you guys predict pandemics? Did, did you say this and we just didn't believe you, or do pandemics just come out of nowhere? It's really hard to predict in truth. There's so many unknown. It's a bit like economics in some way, actually. And I've spoken to economists about this because there's many knowns and there's unknowns and there's dreaded unknown unknowns, you know. And virologists, I know lots of them over the years, they were always saying a pandemic is coming, you know. And they all thought it might be flu. Influenza was the big one that they thought, you know, initially. But isn't influenza there every every summer, every winter, every, all it the time, is, every but, year? But the big fear was it would mutate into a more vicious one, as happened in 1918, for example. And then, of course, there was the swine flu in 2009, you see. So, so flu was thought to be a prime candidate. And then meanwhile, the guys working on coronaviruses, and, and there weren't that many of them, actually, because there was only two big outbreaks in the past, SARS and MERS, and not that many people got infected. But then they were saying, hang on a minute, there's all these viruses in bats. They could jump out again and they could be really nasty. So now the trouble is they couldn't give a number. What do you mean you know? working? Go back there for a second. What do you mean working on coronaviruses? Yeah, studying. Like studying them. Yeah, exactly. In labs and stuff. Looking for a vaccine. Yeah, exactly. Well, you see, for years people have worked on them because four of them caused the common cold, which we all get. And and for years there was there was even a unit in the UK that specifically worked on the common cold and it shut down a few years ago because they couldn't make any progress. So there have been an interest in coronaviruses anyway. And then when SARS... What do you mean they couldn't make any progress? They, they couldn't find a cure? They, could, they couldn't really find a cure. They couldn't find a vaccine. This is a worry, by the way, as, as we may come on to, because they could never get a vaccine for the common cold for those specific viruses. Um, and then... And is there any coronavirus that has a vaccine? No. Well, there is. Oh, there is. You have a SARS. You see, the, ne- the next part of the story would be when SARS and MERS came along. And they were two... Okay, so take me back to the start of the story. Like, what is a coronavirus? Yeah. Is it the worst virus in the world? And what is going it's, on? It's certainly the worst virus now, isn't it? Let's face it, what's, what's going on? Because it's, I mean, this new one, SARS-CoV-2, is so damaging. But they were discovered, I think in the 50s was the first time they were seen down a microscope, you know? And then virologists are always trying to find new viruses anyway. And lo and behold, the common cold is studied. And it was a woman scientist actually gets credit. Now, her name tragically escapes me at the moment. But but anyway, it was first in the 50s, it was reported uh, the first coronavirus. It was named because of what it looked like down the microscope. These little spiky things coming off. It made, made it look like a crown. The word corona means crown. And the first four described, they're shown to cause the common cold, which isn't a big issue, remember. We all get colds. It's more of a nuisance thing, obviously. We don't like having a cold. And why... What makes a virus dangerous or not? Is it us being more resistant to it? Or what makes a virus 
what makes one of them just be a common cold where you don't even have to stop work and what makes one shut down the world? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, I mean, a lot of viruses are, are not that troublesome. And remember, the virus is the ultimate parasite. So it wants to live inside your cells. And so there's no point in it killing you or making you very sick because then you might die and then it loses its place to live in a sense. So, so most viruses infect us and then we get over them. But then there are lots of viruses that are very nice. HIV, of course, is the daddy of them all in some ways. And, and when that emerged, there was massive interest in viruses from, from AIDS. Uh, other ones like hepatitis C damage your liver. So there are ones out that the virus doesn't care. As long as it can replicate and then spread onto someone else, it's done its job. It's, it's a vicious creature in many ways. who just lives, so lives inside our bodies and spreads. a virus, like, to be like the Beyonce of viruses, yes. you have to be <laughs> spreadable. Like, you have to be very contagious. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And well, yes, if it, not be very lethal. Because if you are lethal, then you'll just kill your host immediately, right? Well, there's, there's a, a range of views on this. Ebola is, is one of the worst because there's a very high mortality rate with Ebola. And yet that still survives. Now, it's not all over the world. It's not the best of viruses because if it kills the host, it's less likely to spread. One reason viruses cause symptoms, Stephanie, is that's how they spread. So the reason why a virus makes you cough is... It wants to get out of your body into the next person. So those symptoms are often being driven by the virus itself so as it can spread to the next person. Um, the ones that kill you won't be very widespread because you're killing the host as you go along and that may not be the best thing because if the host is dead, it's less likely to spread to the next person, for example. Uh, and, there, and then there might be that is many that people to live in. Is true of coronaviruses? Well, um, no, Ebola was the worst given the high level of mortality. With, with, um, with MERS, MERS, another one, the seven coronaviruses in total, and MERS was another previous one. That had that 35% mortality, you see. And that might be a reason why that one didn't persist. Because the whole, yeah, the second thing, of course, is if you get symptoms, a very important feature of this virus is um, asymptomatic spread, as we call it. That means people with no symptoms spread it. This is the key feature of the COVID-2 virus, by the way, compared to, say, SARS. Because with SARS, only people with symptoms spread it. And that meant you could isolate those people and then do contact tracing and, and, and shut it down much more quickly, you see. Whereas this one, so it just doesn't have that you feature. Can, if I, but if you said, you said just there that the symptoms cause the spread. But if I am asymptomatic, how do I then spread it? Yeah, that, that's unique to SARS-CoV-2. So as we've just discovered, literally three or four weeks ago, this became clear. They did think initially it was spread by coughing. So the virus goes in, into your lungs, makes you cough and it spreads. But now we know it can live in your nose and in your throat. And that means you've hardly any symptoms at all because it's much more benign there. It's a bit like a cold. You might have very mild symptoms and then it'll be there. Or you may have no symptoms. It's still living in your, in your nose. And now it can spread from there. So, so this is a, a specific feature for this virus, in fact, because most other viruses, you, you drive symptoms and then you spread it came from a bat. Yes. Am I right? That's right. That, that's the clear evidence now it came from a bat, which in itself is very interesting, Stephanie, because it turns out that the, uh, again, there was fantastic stuff on this last week. So bats have a very high metabolism because they fly. You know, and when, and when a bat flies around, it's burning loads of glucose, very high metabolic rate, we call this. And this virus then evolved inside the bat and it can divide very fast as well. So it lives in the bat. It's, it's metabolism of the virus. Now, metabolism means how things use nutrients is what we call that. So, so this particular virus can divide very fast inside the bat to keep up with the bat in a way and live in the bat. And so when it okay. jumps into another species, it still divides very fast, but now it's in the wrong species. The bat, very important, the bat has evolved a way to fight these viruses and can live with them. And we haven't. 
So in many ways, it's designed to live in a bat, or it's evolved, if you like, to live inside the bat optimally. It's when it jumps into a different species that we now see disease and symptoms. And that's become very clear. Literally only in the past couple of weeks has that become even so clearer. So is it the case that the bat, I mean, if the bat was a human, the bat, like, cough or spat or urinated or somehow the fluids from inside the bat got into a human? Exactly. Yes, that's exactly what happened. Yeah. Interestingly as well, Stephanie, a second thing that's really fascinating is if you put a bat under stress, now, now this is a really important thing that they, they think is going on. If bats become very stressed and they can be stressed by environmental damage, you see, or if you catch one and try to bring it to the seafood market or whatever, they shed more virus. They become even more in, in, infectious, if you like. And maybe that's what's happened here. It's, it's yet another example of us going into an environment putting bats under stress, and now they start to spread the virus because they, they release more of the virus. Again, they themselves don't get sick, but now they're releasing more virus, and we're the wrong species, and now it jumps into us. And as you say, it could be a bat, saliva or whatever, bats coughing. You never know, it could be blood so came from these bats into us. Bats live in trees or caves or whatever, yeah. and the more we cull those areas for our own use to build our own hotels or whatever the more the bats are displaced and distressed and the more they come at us with viruses to make us sorry that we disrupted them. Absolutely. That, that's the current idea. And I was amazed by that last week when I read that. They've, they've evidence for this, that a bat it, it, under stress, if you like. And of course, if you're invading the bat's cave and trying to hunt it and all kinds of things, the bat's going to get very stressed, isn't it? And then it may, that may facilitate the virus leaving the bat as natural host and, and it's got a, obviously these viruses like living in bats, and the bats don't mind them either. And they live, they kind of coexist, I suppose. Uh, but then, lo and behold, kind of hard to imagine that like this whole pandemic, the reason that we're all locked in our houses is because one person came in contact with a bat. Like, did it really start? For is there a patient zero? Could you trace it back to one person? You would be able to ultimately, yes. And maybe that bat was in the seafood market. It could have been outside the seafood market. We don't fully know. The evidence is it definitely was, it, most of the cases came from that seafood market in, uh, in, in Wuhan, obviously. So someone picked up this virus from a bat. And this virus, just random, Stephanie, it's, this is what's so amazing in many ways. Remember, nothing is certain in life. If ever this illustrates that point perfectly, just dumb luck. This virus jumped out of a bat into a human, right? Now, there is a chance that it went through the pangolin. That's the other possibility. It was an intermediate species because SARS and MERS did that. They went through different species. So SARS went through a, a civet cat, they think, and then into humans. So there may have been some other species that, that the virus went into first and then into us. We're not fully sure about that. But certainly it originated in bats for definite. How are you able to track what animals it's been in? Yeah, they, they take viruses from these other species and bats, for example, and they find a very related virus. In other words, they found, you know, the ancestral, what, what's called the ancestral virus to what we have in us, the COVID-2 virus in bats. And they may have seen it in the pangolin. And that's where the evidence comes from. You're trying to trace, it's called the, called the lineage. And of course, the bats were an obvious. like viruses are... They're like humans. We all have DNA, like a family tree, and we can trace it back. Absolutely, and strangely, right. they've got they've got RNA. These viruses. So, so in our in our cells, DNA is the recipe, of course, to make more of us. But it gets turned into RNA, 
which is similar to DNA, and RNA then makes proteins. That's your basic rule of life. These viruses just have RNA, which makes them even more efficient, Stephanie. They, they can squirt the RNA into your cell and then start to make the proteins to make the virus, you know? So it's a very kind of quick way to do things. HIV is an RNA virus as well, and so is influenza. There's all these, the whole family of RNA viruses, and, and, and this particular virus belongs in that family. But again, you can see now why, why we're so disturbed in a way, because they reckon there may be as many as 500 coronaviruses in bats, by the way. Any one of those could have jumped, and it might have mutated in, in the pangolin and then became really dangerous to us. And it's completely random. This is the strange thing about this, in a sense. Now, of course, you might say if we hadn't gone into their habitats and hadn't um, yes. put them under Fine stress, it, would, it, would, it wouldn't have happened. And if that turns out to be true, that's a really important lesson for us, isn't it? Because, you know, in other words, we're a victim of this because of our own activities in many ways, if that's proven to be the case. Is there something that can be like, what is the crucial, apart from interest and fascination, what what is the point, I guess, of of knowing exactly the the genetic makeup of this virus? Why do we need to know so much about it? Does it change the outcome? Yeah, well, again, it's very important for where it came from. And if what I've said is true in terms of bats, you know, being stressed and trans- transmitting the virus to us, we've got to be very careful how we handle bats in the future. Let's put it that way. I mean, we, yeah. we should know this already. And having these bats on sale in markets isn't the best, is it? Now, I presume... The Chinese like to eat them. So we eat many animals, don't we? So, but you know, so, so in other words, it's very important to get where it came from and then to study. And then when you study different, as you say, it's like looking at a family tree and maybe it began with some great, great grandfather virus and the great, great grandson then becomes even more evil, if you like, because there's a slight difference in that person or with that virus, if you know what I mean. So in other words, tracking the lineage is very important. The second thing is if this is mutating itself, which I guess we might come back to, that's another concern, because if this turns into an even worse family member, if you will, in other words, we're now at generation number, it's like the sins of the father. Isn't that the phrase? Something like that. Yeah. So, so in other words. But how can the it, virus mutate now? Well, every virus has a rate of mutation. And what that means is its RNA is slightly different. And the reason for that is when you copy the RNA, you make a slight mistake. It's a bit like when you're photocopying something, you know, and it gets a bit right. fainter, say. Like a Chinese whisper. Like a Chinese whisper, precisely. And in fact, um, so the, even our cells, when we copy our DNA, little mistakes come into the copy. It's just because bio- biological systems aren't 100% accurate. How, we've got great, we've got great ways to correct. How quickly does Chinese whisper to change? But it's, it's, it's a chemical thing in a way. So remember, these are all biochemicals, Stephanie. Like RNA is made up of these things called nucleotides. There's a great word for you. And they're all strung out like beads on a string. And you copy that sequence, it's called. And now you've got a copy of that. Maybe it's like beads on a string. And you've got four colored beads. There's four different nucleotides, all different colors. And they're arranged on this big string. And an enzyme comes along to copy it. And maybe the wrong bead goes in because it makes a mistake. And now lo and behold, it's mutated. And if, if randomly, if that mutant... Is, has different properties now, maybe, maybe it makes you sicker. Usually viruses become less what's called virulent as they, as they divide. And that's a good thing for them because then they're, they're living in the host and then you get to the stage when you're like a virus in the bat and you're quite happy to live there. But, but if we're all racing now for a, for a vaccine, and, and I'll come back to vaccines further down the conversation, but if we're racing for a vaccine for a specific RNA sequence and it's yeah. mutating, does that mean that the vaccine that we eventually get might be null and void. It might be like getting a PlayStation 3 game and trying to play it on a PS4. That's exactly it. And that's why we need to know about these these lineages. So what's happening now is they're taking samples of virus from all over the world. They've found probably 30 different 
lineages, we call them, slightly different. There's no evidence yet that any of those are causing worse disease, though, so far. But they track this very, very carefully. Now, we do think, unlike flu, as I said earlier, I think uh, it doesn't mutate at the same rate as flu. And one reason for that is it's a very long RNA. It's much longer than in the flu. And that means it can kind of correct itself, it turns out, a bit better. The longer it is, the more foolproof things it needs to make sure there's no mistakes, I suppose. Um, and that's a good thing, because that means if you do get a vaccine, it should protect against, you know, this virus. And, and, and then it won't mutate to escape the vaccine, is the idea here. Unlike flu, where every, every season you need a different vaccine, because that virus has mutated. So, so th- this is good news at the moment that the mutation rate seems to be pretty slow and that gives us that hope a, that a vaccine should that work. That was a big narrative at the start like oh don't worry about it it's just like flu it's all going to be grand but it's appearing now that apart from like genetically and under a microscope but even even kind of the macro version of it the big picture yeah. it's not at all like flu. No and as, as, as we've discussed what, what's incredible here is how quick the science is moving on this. Discoveries are being made every day. We're learning new stuff every day about this. Initially the symptoms looked a bit like flu or a type of pneumonia. Now the, the, the timeline is amazing Stephanie because we've got precise dates on this remember December 31st. Now can you imagine how that seems like years ago to us now doesn't it but it's only what three or four yes. months ago. The Chinese this morning feel like years ago. But I, I think that Friday to me seems like six months ago. I don't know what the hell's going on. Um, yeah. Our minds are getting messed up by this, Stephanie, in so many ways. Uh, but China, report when the movie is made, Stephanie, it'll open with December 31st. China tells the WHO 41 patients are presenting in Wuhan with a very strange pneumonia. And they wonder, oh, could this be something new? Because the symptoms looked a bit like flu. Like flu will have pneumonia as a feature, you know, get respiratory problems. But they Mm -hmm. knew there was something slightly different in the symptomology and they began to worry, is this a brand new virus or not? It's a bit like HIV, Stephanie, by the way. And that's a good one to talk about. HIV begins to present in in the gay community in America. And again, it begins with a very strange, severe pneumonia. It presents with a type of skin cancer called Kaposi sarcoma. And they said, oh, this must be a new virus. And they began to wonder what the hell it was, you know? So in other words, it begins with symptoms. If it's different to another, a very, very clever doctor is spot, oh, this isn't quite the same as something else. And then they begin to wonder, is this a brand new virus? And then by January 7th, then they've identified the virus. Now, they must have had samples before December 31st, we reckon. They think the first cases might have been late November. And then doctors begin to wonder, what the hell is this disease? And they begin to take samples. And then the Chinese, huge credit, very quickly identify this as a brand new virus. And then January 11th is the first death. Isn't that amazing, Stephanie? That's how recent it is. The first death from this virus is January 11th. You then get the first case outside China is in Thailand. We then get so the first... So U- if the first death is January 11th, And they discover, like, is the 31st, I know the movie opens on the 31st of December, but is that sort of just when they were like, actually, we're going to have to tell people now? Did they know about it for much longer? And how was that the first person, the first person who got it, the first person to die, if you know what I mean? No, no, I don't think so. No, obviously it began to spread. I think there was more than 41 people on December 31st, probably, you know. There could have been hundreds of people at that stage. Uh, They just report on these 41. And then very, very um, importantly, and they deserve credit, the Lancet have given these doctors huge credit for responding quickly. The worry would be the the Chinese... Yeah, the Lancet, that's a very eminent journal. You know, it's one one of the best medical journals. The editor said these people deserve huge acclaim because they spot it quite quickly. Um, And obviously if they hadn't spotted it and it kept running the mortality will be vastly higher, you know. And, and so, in other words, that those those doctors have said, no, I know lots of people have died and that it, it's a tragedy and all the rest. 
but there would have been a lot more deaths if they hadn't jumped on it quick, you see. And then they say there must be a new virus, and lo and behold, they find it again pretty quickly, and then it begins to ramp up. The key feature of the virus that's be- that became very clear, certainly, again, the way the timing is, it's, it's amazing. In the last four weeks, uh, this has become clear of how contagious it is, Stephanie, and this is what makes it different to flu, for a start. It's much more contagious than flu. And secondly, something um, contagious means you can catch it more readily. So it's the dreaded or or not value, how much it reproduces, you know. So um, so flu. What does that? But like, what makes something contagious? Is it something in its RNA, or is it absolutely? Yeah, yeah. Well, this okay. is the, the well. The, the fact is, they don't fully know why it's so contagious. T- two reasons. One is this spreading without symptoms, right. and that means it's going to spread much more quickly. Lots of people are out there walking around going to the pub, whatever, and they're spreading the virus. They don't even know they've got the disease, you see. Whereas normally, it's interesting, Stephanie, the reason why we feel sick, by the way, with a virus, it's to spread the virus. That's one reason. But it's to make sure you stay in bed. And that's an evolved thing. Do you know what I mean? And you stay away from the herd to protect the rest of the community. So so this sickness response so is actually... like the virus wants us to like be coughing over everyone. And as humans, we have evolved to know that and also then prevent it by staying in bed. Precisely. Now, this is called sickness behavior. It's a well-known thing in immunology, by the way. It's the first thing that you have when you get a virus or or a bacteria in your body. You get sickness behavior. Now, what is it? You feel a bit depressed, and this is absolutely true, which means you you want to stay in bed. You don't want to socialize. Uh, You have aches and pains in your muscles. You have a temperature. You feel rotten, basically. And and, and the mission there, back, back in the Stone Age, you crawl into your cave, you see. And animals do this. Lots of different creatures have this sickness behavior. Even crustaceans have it. You know, so it's, it's evolved as a way to isolate you from the rest of the pack. In other words, it's sort of um, a biological lockdown, if you like, you know. So instead of being told to stay away, your body says, no, no, I got to stay away. I, I, I don't want to be part of the community to stop it spreading. So, and the trouble with this one is, that, again, to emphasize, this is most unusual. You're infectious with no symptoms. It's like, it's a very cunning thing in a way. It's almost as if the virus figured this out and said, I'll, I'll, I'll be able to spread and nobody will know I'm in that person's body. Great, you know, and lots of people then pick sight. it up. See, it, its mission is to, is to, no more than ourselves as humans, by the way, its mission is to replicate, you know, and, and very cunningly it does this. And you talked about our Neanderthal brains there and uh, and protecting the herd. Was is I've heard the term herd immunity and I understand it to mean that a percentage, a large percentage, 70% of the population of the herd, let's say, have to have had this virus and gotten over it for us to transmit immunity rather than the virus. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. It's, herd immunity is an interesting phrase, Stephanie. It was, it's mainly used for vaccines, by the way, historically. And I wouldn't have come across it much as a natural process during an infection, strangely. And, and, and the vaccination world says you must have a vaccination rate of 90, 95% in the, in the community to make sure the virus has nowhere to hide anymore. So take measles, for example, you need to get above 90% vaccination and then the virus has nowhere to hide, right? And that's what makes vaccination okay. so important. Um, now you get the same thing with a natural infection, of course, but, but the mission with a natural infection would be isolate the person who's infected because they get sick and it doesn't spread anyway. That, that's the more natural response. Uh, of course, gradually things will build up immunity. And it, the, the, pers- the people don't always go into their caves. <laughs> They're still wandering around sometimes, you know. So you do see a bit of spreading and then you begin to build up immunity in the, in, in the whole community. And that's a good thing because that's a natural way to do it, I suppose. And then the virus, again, has nowhere to hide is the way to think of it. But strangely, we mainly use herd immunity when we talk about vaccines. Yeah, it seems sort of um, reckless almost to 
let us all run into the field and cough into each other's faces yeah. and just hope that enough of us then survive that, that we can then not... It's it's alarming, Stephanie. Anymore. It's alarming. I mean, it begins to get spoken about in the UK kind of first, you see. And then the Swedish people talk about it as well. But again, I wouldn't have come across that term outside the context of vaccination before, much. I mean, you, I would have heard it maybe once or twice, but it's mainly with vaccination because you want to protect the community. Of course you do, you know. To, to let a virus run wild, I think it was partly to do with the economic damage they were talking about there in a way. In other words, we have to sacrifice a certain number of people. And you would have seen those protesters in America last week. Did you see that? Holding up yes. placards, let the old people die. Or some, some awful phrasing on some of those placards. So it's it's unacceptable that you would allow that to happen in, 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 a, in a civilized society, I think. It's disgraceful. But it also seems that it's, um, I understand because it's a respiratory virus, like older people and people with underlying illnesses are statistically going to die more. But it also seems to be quite random. There are these other yeah. cases and you don't hear about them too much. But even in our own HSE briefings, when Tony Holland says, you know, uh, one of the people, you know, eight people died today and four of them had underlying illnesses. Yeah. Like, yeah but what about the other four? Were they just four healthy, normal people who are now dead? Yep. Because Absolutely. they, that's very frightening. It's a great question. Now, remember, Stephanie, the reason why we invented medicine is to stop people dying and getting sick, you know. And this includes yeah. old people and people with diabetes and blood pressure. That's what medicine's for, for crying out loud. So the notion of letting these people die from a virus is outrageous, you see. That's the first thing I would say. Um, but secondly, then, uh, yeah, it's a very strange business. Now, remember, it's all very statistical. So you'll have like 100 people. Let's say you did, let's say you did the most. Uh, they've done this with more benign viruses. So you've got 100 people and you infect them all and see who gets sick and who doesn't, right? And some get very sick and some don't. Some fight it. Some never get infected at all. So it's very statistical in a way. And there's various reasons for this, by the way. Now, if we take, um, it was done with smallpox, terrifyingly, which was one of the worst viruses, remember, for that was one of the earliest viruses to be worked on in a way. And, and the first vaccine was against smallpox. If you take a thousand people in a room who've never been vaccinated and you give them all smallpox, they've done this now more with mice, it must be said, but a third will get infected of, the, of the, all those. Now, why are those third getting infected? We don't really know. It, and, and remember, we've exposed them all to the same amount of virus. It could be different amounts of virus and some people take in more. But all things being equal, a third get infected. Of those third, a third die, a third get better and never get sick again, and a third are badly disfigured. Smallpox was terrifying because it caused terrible skin lesions, all kinds of things. The main reason for this is probably genetic. So in other words, we've all got slightly different immune systems. It's a bit, The analogy I use is like we've all got different faces. Now, you know your face right. is very different to someone else's unless you've got an identical twin. Equally, your immune system is slightly different. And maybe some people have a stronger immune system or a better one to fight a virus. And, and of course, evolution wants to build that in. The reason why we have variation in the human population is partly for this very reason. So some people will survive an infection. It's almost like as if it was, you know, evolved to be that way, you see. So, so when we see somebody young dying, it's horrendous, isn't it? And, and, and there was no obvious underlying conditions. There could be two reasons. One is they got a massive dose of virus because we know the dose, the amount you take in, it can, can predict severity and it makes sense in a way because that overwhelms your body and you can't handle it mm -hmm. the analogy i use there is like drinking pints in a way you know like one pint is good two pint is okay three is probably all right four you're on the way down five six seven you're on the floor and that that virus is like this the more virus you take in the worse it's going to be you know you also have you know lightweights people who are absolutely stoches after one pint 
And, and so that's genetic. kind of might be the outliers. <laughs> that could be genetic as well, to be honest, precisely. I mean, we look at these things very closely. Um, and in fact, the Japanese are very prone to alcohol. Do you ever hear that story? They flush when they drink alcohol. They've got a different enzyme. They've got a defective enzyme that can't metabolize the alcohol properly. And these aldehydes build up on their skin and make them flush. And that's genetic. So absolutely, you, the lightweights are probably genetically less able to, to handle it possibly. So what, but that, but, but so those are the two reasons in a sense. One is the dose of virus going in. And the second is then a genetic difference. And sadly, some people are going to have the wrong kind of genetic makeup for this specific virus. And they have a very poor pr- prognosis then, you know? Okay. So basically the virus comes. It overwhelms the world. No one has seen it before. Politicians are asked to sort it and they look to public health advisors. And in this country, anyway, we've decided to have a have a, a, a kind of lockdown. Now, based on what you've said there, and this is another thing for the film version, but if everyone in the world stood still, absolutely still in there, like only taking up the amount of space that their footprints take up. Yep. And nobody touched off each other yep. or spoke or did anything for two weeks. Would this virus disappear? If nobody absolutely. at all. A- absolutely. That's exactly. And that's why the lockdown has to go on for weeks at a time, remember. We know how long the virus lives inside our bodies. We know how long it takes the immune system to kill it. And then sadly, we know a certain percent of people get very sick, you see. So all that's known. And it was, it became clear. Again, the Chinese began mapping this in January, February very carefully. So we know the virus goes into your body. Uh, you don't have any symptoms until about day seven. This is on average now. This is the problem with this in a sense, because it's always averages. Some get symptoms yeah. slightly earlier, but on average, about day seven, you begin to develop symptoms. They last about three or four days, and then you begin to recover. And by day 14, on average, the viral count is much lower now. Now, it turns out you might need to go beyond day 14. Certainly out, out to three weeks is probably better, because then it's all gone for definite in the ones who recover you know and you're right yes. so and, and if you stay locked up in your house you don't meet anybody ever for that period and all the rest of it you will handle the virus and high press of the virus now gone it's literally gone stephanie it's destroyed by the immune system it's nowhere to hide right because the immune okay. system is fantastic at killing viruses completely we call this by the way steril- sterilizing immunity is the name of immunologists because you sterilize the body. It's like disinfectant, if I can say that, except it's the immune system is doing, very careful, it's the immune system that disinfects us. That's its job. So you're dead right. It would go completely. Now, the trouble is you can't implement that um, across the board. The Chinese had the best shot at that, and it's, it's worked a lot in China, remember? They had the most severe lockdown in history. 11 million people were locked down in Wuhan very quickly. Remember, the history of this will show this. And lo and behold, it doesn't spread anymore because everybody's locked away, you see. So now the, now the trouble is, is there's always of, a risk of clusters, yes. little pockets, so and it may not be foolproof. you know. But, but as you said, if we could implement a stringent lockdown, the virus would be destroyed. But it sort of is either all or nothing because... Well, I understand that. Okay, so here's my understanding of how we have approached it. We have a lockdown in as much as we can. I know China had a more stringent one, but they also have a different relationship to civil liberty and, you know, you yeah. know, your free will and freedom. So we ask people to stay inside. We know the HSE guidelines. But obviously health workers, essential workers, people in the food supply industry, they all have to go out and we're allowed to go out for two kilometre walks. And so and then we come back to our homes with with or without the virus. So there is then much fewer people moving around, but the virus is still in circulation. 
and therefore a few more people will get it, but not at the rate that would happen if everyone was kind of like, uh, you know, when you play snooker and you have the first break with the ball, when everyone yeah. is bouncing around and hitting off each other. That's right. Then you're much more likely to catch it. So it's more about keeping a lockdown is actually more about protecting the health care supply and the ability to care yeah. for people rather than killing the virus. That's right. Is that correct? You've hit the nail on the head there. The main reason for the lockdown is to stop the health service being overwhelmed. It's as simple as that. That's the main reason. Because remember, we know now 99% of people are fine. They get the virus, they get over it. Maybe 15 of those have a rough old disease and they're very sick for a while, but they get over it. It's the 1% we have to worry about the whole time. How do we mind that 1%? And we mind that 1%, of course, by making sure there aren't too many of them, because if there's too many, they over they overwhelm the health system. And you saw the dire predictions, every health system in the world was about to be overwhelmed. And that would have been mayhem, Stephanie. You would have been seeing body, body bags everywhere, doctors getting sick, nightmare situation, everybody. So the mission was to sort of the spread the damn curve as we know it's okay if people get sick as long as you can treat them and look after them in a way so so the main purpose of the lockdown absolutely was to protect this this vulnerable community in a way and 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 it does seem to have worked doesn't it i mean apart from the nursing home issue of course which is a big concern uh by and large that this lockdown in different countries has worked and we've slowed down that surge and then meanwhile I'm just reluctant to talk about it in the past tense you know like it has worked but what yeah. i understood i think i was so panicked about this virus that when the chief medical officer in this country said this is how we are going to deal with this we are going to flatten the curve flatten to me i had a kind of a whack-a-mole yeah, image in right. my head where we were just going to knock this virus out and that the yeah. curve was the virus and we were going to flatten it but actually if you look at what flattening the curve is, so imagine in your head the the graph and there's the straight line upwards and that's the number of deaths. And then across the bottom of the graph is time. Yep. Flattening the curve is extending that bottom line out. It is making yes. time longer. That's and right. I didn't understand that until recently. So by flattening the curve, we're not killing the virus. We're just dragging out how long this goes on for so that there are enough beds for people to either recover yeah. or die in. That's the initial that's the initial response because the health service will worry about this being overwhelmed thing, obviously, right? But the second thing you want to do is get less people dying ultimately. You do actually want to see less mortality in the community. Um and there's two ways that can happen. One is better health care to keep them going, of course. And then we're waiting, remember, for science to give us the answer. So the more time we can buy, the better it is, because then we get to the stage where there's a vaccine or an anti-inflammatory, which we can discuss some of the therapies, I guess. But, uh, but you know what I mean? So in other words, you're, you're buying yourself time before we get a, a medical solution to this virus. And then they have but, this famous phrase, Stephanie, the hammer and the dance. Have you come across that one? Yes. So the hammer and dance... Um I'll explain it to you in my most yeah. basic terms and then you can tell me where my ho my the holes in my understanding are. So the hammer and dance is imagine imagine a Kaylee you're you're at a dance you're at a <laughs> yes. dance hall and there won't be a Kaylee for a long time <laughs> Oh my god imagine I'd love to do the siege of Venice now. <laughs> yes. Um so someone so and the Kaylee is just normal life we're all dancing around we're all swinging and you know rowing a bukali dancing around and then someone a virus comes and then the hse and the public health hammer down 
a lockdown. They're like everyone off the dance floor and we yep. all retreat into our houses and we're yep. all on our own. And then eventually they're like, okay, we flatten the curve. We have enough hospital beds. We have enough PPE. We're ready. Yep. You can all back onto the floor for the siege of Venice. And we all <laughs> come out slowly. Maybe not all of us, depending on what the government say, maybe only brunettes can come out or maybe only people whose second name has an O in it. And we come out and we dance around. Some of us get infected. Some of us die, unfortunately. And then when too many of us are sick, they come back and they hammer down again. That's it. Everyone back into your houses. That's it. You've and got then, it exactly. Yeah, precisely. I mean, I mean, the, da- the dance, the dance is more about things going up and down a bit, I suppose. In other words, you, you, you've got a big outbreak, right? You hammer that yeah. down, get those numbers right down, and you can live with it then bouncing around a bit as time goes by with less cases over the, over the amount of time, I suppose. But you're right, there's less numbers in the dance phase for definite, you see. Yeah. And, and it, it is the spread of it among numbers of people that's dancing around a bit. And that goes up and down. And then but how and then long the big, do we have to be doing these jigs and reels for? Well, no, the, the, the hope here, Stephanie, is that, that the hammer, you hope the hammer's worked. And, and, and as we say, we are talking in the past there and so on. The hammer does seem to be working in places like New Zealand, who were leading the way in many ways. It worked in China because the hammer was so aggressive. It flattened everything, you know, completely. Yeah, but then um, you let people out again. The virus yeah. is still there. We haven't killed the virus. And that's why you need your, 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 uh, your testing and your contact tracing then. In other words, you replace lockdown with selective lockdown of just people who okay. are infected or who've been contacted with people who are infected. Now, the only problem with that is the symptomless, sim- well, the symptomless spreading. How, how do you find people then? But at least it, it would be very useful to have elaborate contact tracing and so on. And now you isolate those people instead of all of us. That's the next phase of this, this sort of um, pandemic that we're in at the moment. And the dance then becomes, it goes up and down. And then you get everybody who's infected and who's been uh, had, had been in connection with somebody. You lock them down, and then that goes on. That could go on for months, basically. But society begins to reopen because you're now just more does, selective. Does that mean that only and like to go back to my uh, flawed Kaylee uh, metaphor? <laughs> it's not bad. <laughs> could it come? Could it come to a time where, when we're off the dance floor, they're testing us and contact tracing us, so that only you know, only people who have had the virus are allowed out to do the walls of Limerick. Yeah. Well, the, the trouble is, again, again, the science literally in the last week has addressed that more closely. And we have a worry now. And that is that the, the, the dream there was if you're infected, your immune system works and you make antibodies, these magical molecules, the antibodies that we all go on about. And remember, antibodies are the best thing you have in the immune system. They're made in response. In this case, this virus has these spike proteins. Can you imagine your body makes like a type of blue tack to mask that spike? And that's what the antibodies are. So can we test for antibodies now and see who's had the infection and then say, oh, they're grand. They've had the infection. They've now got their built-in medicine that the body has made themselves and they're now protected. And not only that, but there's no virus in them because the antibodies have killed all those viruses and they're now like bulletproof, you know? The still, it's still not clear if what I've said there is true and it's still a work in progress. How could we make that clear? Well, the WHO, you see, are very worried about this at the moment because some countries are doing this immunity passport thing. Chile, for instance, came out and said, oh, we're going to test for antibodies now. And if we test someone positive, you now have your, your stamp and your, 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 your vaccine passport. Off you go again, back to normal. We still, that may be true. We're confident, by the way, that it probably is true and there's evidence to support it. We just need more evidence, sadly, as ever. So 
it's, do you ever think, Stephanie, we're waiting for things the whole time? I'm going mad. It's like waiting for Godot a thousand times, isn't it? We're now waiting to I'm, see if what I've said is true. And of course, how you test it is you look at people who have been infected. Uh, and in China is where this is happening, by the way. Are any of those people getting reinfected? And you can test that now. So we're going to find out pretty soon. If, and uh, are if you they had it doing once. that? Like, they are absolutely... Yeah, this is the key priority now. And I mean, there is talk of antibody testing here, of course, and in the UK and places, uh, and that, that will begin to come in, but it can't be used as a way to say, oh, you're all right. You know, you, you can go on down, you can go to the Cayley tomorrow night because you're, you're, you're okay. You know, it's not at that stage, sadly, but, it, but it's very much a work in progress. It's very important for vaccine development as well. What vaccines do is they bring out the antibodies. So we're hoping that those antibodies will will protect us. Of course, that's the dream here. And there's evidence they might. I mean, there's one treatment is to use this convalescent plasma, it's called, if, and they're taking antibodies from people who've had the disease, and those antibodies seem to pr- protect someone else, you know? So we're confident this might work, but we need more evidence to support that. Tom Hanks is saying he's going to give his plasma to people and uh, there you have it. <laughs> inject them. But that doesn't, that doesn't grant immunity. It more helps you fight the virus when you are sick. Is that right? That's right. Yes, yeah, a therapy, I suppose. It's another way to give someone something to kill the virus. And, and it works. I mean, they've, they've, done, they've done limited trials so far. We're seeing data emerge from some of these trials. It's still early because you've got to do a proper, what's called a double-blind, randomized trial. But still, uh, there's some indications this might work. And Tom Hanks, each person can give enough for four people. Isn't that marvelous? And and if if this ramps up, there's a chance this might ramp up, Stephanie, and it'll be more common. That means every sick person can save four people potentially, which is wonderful for our community, isn't it? So so that, that's where that might go towards at this stage. So I just want to clarify something that you said there about we do we do not know if having had COVID nineteen you are immune to COVID nineteen. Am I correct? We don't know for definite. It has to be said. But it's how- still an unknown. Could you not just inject someone who's had it with COVID-19 again and then be like, oh, they're not sick? That's a radical. Surely it would only take two weeks to prove that. A radical idea there. And in fact, they may do that in the vaccine trials. Because remember, the vac- a vaccine trial means you give someone a vaccine, let them loose in the community and wait and to see if they get infected. Why not rechallenge them? And there's talk of that. Now, it's, there's an ethical question there. You're giving someone a virus that's pretty nasty, you know. And again, you but might say, oh, you well, yeah, we don't know. You, they, they, you're doing an experiment on someone there because you don't know the answer, you know. Ethically, but you that do can know be a, that they've had it. Like if someone they, has tested positive and recovered. They do, but what, but what if what if a, what if they're not protected and they get a worse disease next time around? Not not to frighten you, Stephanie, but there's a thing called now. Are you ready for another immunology jargon yes, thing? Hit me. It's called antibody dependent enhancement, right? Now this has been well known for certain viruses. Dengue, which is the virus, does this. And in that situation, right. your immune system makes antibodies, and guess what? They favor the virus. They help the virus oh, infect cells and make things worse. And there have been experimental vaccines in the past which have made people worse. Can you believe it? It's the worst thing. So now, now we don't it's think like this is the case. It's like Beauty and the Beast. It's like it, it, Belle yeah, is right. your immune system, and yeah. she's like falling in love with the beast. And you're like, no, exactly. get away from him. <laughs> That's exactly it. And, and we know there's it's, there are very few examples of this now, mind you. Let's not frighten people with vaccines. They're very safe, you know, but, uh, but they, they're watching that very closely in these vaccine trials. Now, the good news there is, now, again, if you're a scientist, what you want is data. We live, it's, right. not, it's not like economics, which is based on opinion, am I right? <laughs> um, yeah, you want true. data, 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 data. We know uh, the candidate vaccines that are being tested now in human have gone through monkeys. Now, sadly, we have to use animals for some of these experiments first. Uh, and they didn't cause antibody-dependent enhancement. And that's a good sign. Uh, 
So this particular class of virus then is unlikely to cause this nasty antibody effect. So we're, we're, that gives us hope that this won't happen. But until we Could do we? things in humans, we won't know. And they're very careful now with the trials. I mean, they're monitoring these humans really closely just to check for this very thing. And other, other non-specific side effects can happen as well. So that's an important consideration. Could we test a vaccine on bats? Because they have it. And I know it doesn't make them sick, but yeah. you could still kill it in the bat, no? There's a, there's a wild idea. Va- vaccinate all the bats. <laughs> um, I, I think because the bats are so good at handling it, you couldn't make them sick anyway, you know? True. Okay. And lives, lives in them quite happily, I suppose, you know? I mean, one thing well, you might just... do, the, the, the other big hope is antivirals, which you may come back to drugs that kill the virus. You could give, you could, you could on, give bats those. But you, you could kill, kill the, the virus in bats and then this won't happen again. It's a really, that's a fantastic idea. I haven't heard is that. Is malaria um, a virus? No, that's a parasite. All right. Because I there. have, because you know the way there is no cure for it, but when you go to those countries, you have to take these mad tablets that give you crazy dreams. And guess is what that, that the is? Same as like, guess what that is? What is? That's hydroxychloroquine. <laughs> that works oh, the malaria. Th- <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going to say any more about that. That's the very drug, yeah. I mean, I mean, the antivirals are interesting because the other. So, if if you were if you're sensible, you say, what are the negatives and what have we got to worry about? Now, we wouldn't be telling this to the general public a lot of the time because they're too big these unknowns, and then people run away with a negative comment sometimes. But if you're responsible, you say, what will happen to us if we can't get a vaccine? Now, there is a slim chance of that. I wouldn't put a percent on it, but it's a tiny chance that that might be the case. Your next best bet are antivirals. These are drugs that you take that kill the virus. And there are several in development. The lead one is called Remdesivir, which people have heard of, uh, which is a company called Gilead. Great name for a company, isn't it? Um, So Gilead are testing Remdesivir. But there's five or six others out there. Now, remember, we never got a vaccine for AIDS. That's handled with antivirals. We never got a vaccine for hepatitis C, which is a virus that afflicts many people. It damages the liver. It can be lethal. Many Irish women, as you may know, got hepatitis C from contaminated blood products. It was a tragedy there. Uh, And yet we now treat that with an antiviral. There's a drug that kills that virus. And guess what company made that? Gilead. And that's why we like Gilead. They've got a track record of making antivirals. So in other words, that's our second hope here. And that may work just as well. A vaccine is best because it's one shot and you're protected. A prevention, remember, is always better than cure, the famous phrase. And vaccines are the best example of preventive medicine because it stops you getting disease in the first place. A vaccine is also very important for the developing world because you can't really get enough drugs to the developing world for all kinds of reasons. The incidence might be higher there and so on. So so we know we need vaccines for those countries as well. So, so mission one is a vaccine, but just in case these antivirals give us a second plan and that would be really good. And, and, and one prediction would be we'll get antivirals pretty soon because the trials are running, they're quicker to do. We'll know again the dreaded few weeks from now we're waiting, waiting, waiting. Uh, if those antivirals begin to work, Stephanie, different world. Can you imagine? Because now you can give it to people and now, hey presto, we begin to bring the virus to, 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 so to heal in a sense. In that case, you just let people out onto the dance floor again and while they're doing their hay and doe trees and getting yep. sick, you let them get sick and then you give them the antiviral. Or you even give it to them before they go on the dance floor. <laughs> oh, you can take preventative antivirals. Yeah, because they might be at risk. Is that not the your, same as a vaccine? They might. Absolutely. It is somewhat similar. Yeah, but it's a, but it's a drug. that, that you're, you're much better off giving it to them when they begin to get symptoms to bring the viral count down. So you can imagine that situation. They're dancing away and they get infected. 
and now the virus count, they get symptoms. Then you go in quickly. Like we're talking about day seven now and you treat those people. There could be a case though, yeah, for prophylactic use, as we just said there. Maybe that would be as good as a vaccine. It won't give you protection for years, you know. But What's and, prophylactic? And have, that means before the thing happens. You know, okay. you're, you're anticipating it. Um, so that's a possibility. The trouble is, you know, there's issues. The, the one that Gilead have is injectable. It's not, it's not a tablet. So that's right. not ideal. That can only be given in a hospital setting then, you know. But other ones coming down the track could be given. There is one for flu, by the way. It's called Tamiflu. And that, that's an antiviral, you see. And they often use that with a vaccine, two punches type thing, you know. So, so those are the kinds of things we'd be exploring. But, but what I'm hearing and predicting would be, can you imagine if this antiviral works? So someone, Now, remember, your goal is to stop people dying and getting sick. Badly sick, obviously. Given yeah. that most people have mild disease, we don't worry about them. They're okay. That's like, that's like having the cold or, or a mild flu. So let, let them have it. And, and as we've discussed already, they, they might build up immunity anyway. It's the ones who end up in hospital you want to worry about or the vulnerable mm-hmm. ones. And that could be older people. Give them an antiviral. The viral count collapses down in their bodies because you've killed the virus, you see, on contact. It's fantastic. And, and then again, you might give it then in nursing homes if there's a risk of those people getting infected. So this, this would really be hopeful for us if we see this emerging now. That will lift people's moods a million percent, Stephanie. It gives us a way out of this that's absolutely brilliant and based on medicines. And that, that's why we've got to keep our fingers crossed that that might be, you know, a possibility. This might sound like a terrible capitalist question, but... Is there, you know, I've, I've heard doctors say that some doctors actually say they're quieter than they've ever been because the hospitals are quieter because people aren't presenting. You know, the economy is kind of shut down. Is there something worse than coronavirus for the general population in the sense that people's physical health and mental health and the economy is suffering in such a way that it's almost imbalancing. Yeah. Do you know what Absolutely. I mean? I don't There's want to big... kind of finish the sentence because I feel like such a capitalist. No, you're, 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 again, you're hitting the nail firmly. You're hammering the nail on the head. So the question is, right, so, so there's a risk of death with this virus and severe illness in 1% of the population, and we don't want those people dying for obvious reasons. The purpose of medicine is to keep people alive. If you make a decision... For example, the lockdown, how many people will die because of that is the next question. And we know that things like the suicide rate's gone up a little bit, domestic violence, all kinds of things. There could be all kinds of consequences years ahead now. And we worry about our children, don't we? Because they could become traumatized. There could be PTSD, which could have all kinds of consequences. We know the rate of alcohol use has gone up. That will have a health consequence, you see. And then beyond that, an economy in free fall, unemployment is a massive negative for human health for all kinds of reasons to do with psychological well-being and all kinds of things. It's very hard to measure those, isn't it, though? And I suppose that, again, that's the job of the economist to say, look, this is what it's costing us. And we know instinctively there will be a big price to pay for the, for the policies that we're following to save other people's lives, I suppose. So these are definite unknowns that we need to consider. Now, remember, if you're a smart government, you're ahead of the curve on this. And you'll see at the moment the HSE shifted kind of and they said, look, 
me- mental health is a key thing. And all the guys on the radio are saying the things you can do in your local community to maintain your mental health because they know about this. And, 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 and therefore, you've got to come up with strategies now to help people. Because remember, each life is equally valid. Each, each, each medical issue must be treated similarly. So, of course, we've got to worry about these other consequences of what's going on at the moment. And again, we're in a brand new world. There's nothing like this, remember. So, so again, hopefully, we will stay on top of those things. But there has to be a, a health consequence because of what's happened. And then the economic consequence is only important, let's face it, if it, if it damages people's lives. So, yes, so, and, 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 and I'm not and that, that seems particularly to be interested in the economics of it right now. But do you think that letting people back out onto the dance floor with with masks and hand sanitizer will yeah. be the next phase wouldn't wouldn't be great for the dance would it so you can't have people dancing around in masks it, it kind of defeats the purpose of uh the old cave it would in a certainly sense. slow the amount of people who get sick on the dance floor then wouldn't it's it certainly is that if you're prepared to pay that price absolutely um well I mean, yes, clear, clear. The big issue is how do you get the infection rate down? Okay. In a community, social distancing is number one, because you don't meet anybody and you don't spread it that way. Okay. Number two is if you do go out, the two meter rule, very important. And then the other key, ne- never forget the hand washing. Did you know, Stephanie, let's not lose sight of hand washing. That's 50% of the battle, by the way, to stop it spreading. That single act is so important, you know. So you maintain all those things, definitely masks. And I've been a big advocate lately for this. The evidence behind wearing masks is absolutely compelling. Not, 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 not to protect you now, to protect the other person. And the analogy I used there that I came across that I cribbed and you know this, we're great at cribbing, aren't we, <laughs> from other yeah. things that we read. Um, it's like it's like the virus is a fire burning in your city, okay? And the fire mm-hmm. brigade of the health service trying to put it out. Every time you breathe, you're breathing out embers that could get the fire going again. So for crying out loud, wear a mask and stop the embers spreading. And that Shut really... <laughs> that really captures the thing. Now, of course, <laughs> I had that in the paper yesterday and someone wrote to me, are we really breathing out fire? I said, no, no, it's, it's an analogy. <laughs> um, but, you know, that kind of thing. So so the, the, the mask is, is another important thing. And there have been really good studies on the mask. It's obvious in a sense, isn't it? Getting the or not down below one, you know. Um, so the, all these things, I think, will be part of our lives, I have to say. Now, you might have a situation where you'll never, I mean, the big question now is, what does the opening up of the lockdown look like? There's no way pubs That's can That's what open. I'm thinking, because I, I guess the little child inside me is hoping that it will unlock the way it was locked and that once the lockdown is removed, we will go back to normal. But there is no way that we're not going to have, like social distancing and masks are around for a yeah. while, as long as yeah. the virus is around. Well, well, you can't beat the word locked, can you, Stephanie? <laughs> we're hopefully all yeah. going to get locked again one day. Um, no, you're right. I mean, I, I, I had this image of going to pubs and sucking through a straw, through your mask kind of thing, you know, <laughs> that won't be allowed. Um, but you're right. I mean, I mean, the notion of uh, the other thing, very interesting study that came out literally yesterday. They've looked at the super spreaders, which is an interesting concept. They've got lots of evidence now that one person in, in a pub, say, infects 10, that kind of thing. They've got numbers on this now, a restaurant. There's a famous case of a restaurant where one guy in the restaurant infected like eight people, right? So well, they've analyzed where super spreading happens and guess where it is pubs restaurants any mass gathering is the that's obvious in a sense and especially where they're shouting get this definitely and, and this is true right so shouting means you spread even more virus from your throat and your nose and where do we shout 
football matches, pubs. And they're much, and, and this study showed that there, there's very few cases of super spreading in supermarkets, for instance, or places where people gather and stay quiet. Isn't that interesting? So like it seems theaters? to be. Yeah, theatres, exactly, in cinemas. People stay quiet. There's no evidence of super spreading in those places. So again, we've learned a lot from that. Now, again, the mask, a single act of people wearing masks would have stopped all that spread. Absolutely. Now, can you wear a mask in in a pub? I don't know. Uh, Can you wear one? You have to eat, haven't you, in a restaurant? So, But certainly another massive source of super spreading was religious festivals. You may have followed these stories in South Korea. Yes, yes. An awful lot of shouting and roaring and kissing and hugging and all that. Great for this thing to spread, you know. So the future. Do you think that because of SARS and MERS, which, if I write, if I'm right in understanding, they happened over like in Asia, um, that those cultures are much more used to wearing masks. Like yeah. wearing a mask here would, like a few months ago, even a few weeks ago, would have you'd have been stared at, and Absolutely. now it's kind of a badge of honor. Where like, well, by wearing a mask. I will thank you if you are wearing masks because you're protecting me. Well, you may remember, did you ever have this, Stephanie? Remember you go beyond the London Underground or you might be in an airport somewhere and you see an Asian person wearing a mask, you would resent them. Why is that person wearing a mask? What are they thinking of? Are they so self-important and how dare they? It's like like a nervous response, isn't it? It's a funny thing. And that's a human response saying, oh, that person's just frightening me and I'm going to attack them kind of thing, you know? Um, Yes, yeah. And and that would be the case here when when, when maybe a month ago, as you say, you'd see people walking around with masks. What's that guy doing wearing a mask, you know? Now it's changing for definite. And remember... Because of SARS, absolutely. SARS drove this in Asia. So did flu, because, you know, they worry about flu in these countries for years anyway. And masks became a wonderful thing. It was, it was like a, a, a sign of solidarity. It's almost a badge of honor that I'm helping everybody by wearing a mask. In other words, it's not about you. It's about the other person. And, 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 and the shift in the narrative now means that we, we should all feel this way. And I know I, I, I have to wear a mask. I haven't written that thing yesterday. So when I go out now, I've been doing it for about a week, by the way. I'll wear my mask and off I go. And I, I'm able to go into work, by the way. I'm going to work this afternoon. So back into the city center. So absolutely wear your mask with pride. And the evidence is so compelling, it stops the embers spreading to keep the fire going. So we're going to see a shift towards mask wearing for definite, I predict. I hope, anyway. I hope too. Um, I've got two more questions for you. As a scientist, microbiologist and immunologist, do you think that we're going to see this happen again with another virus? Like that this is now something we have to battle with? Yes, but again, it's the dreaded unknowns. This is the known unknown, by the way, right? So now the big fear is SARS-CoV-3. Remember, this is number two that we're going through now. And certainly you have to be very careful now because SARS broke out. So did MERS, right? They were two new coronaviruses that emerged. And it's only, what, 2012, 2013 that happened. So there was, what, a 17-year gap between them, say? Uh, it could happen anytime. It's sporadic, you know, it's totally random. And we absolutely have to get ready for it now because we can't have this happening in a year from now, can we? And yet there is a real chance. Now, it's not a very high chance, tiny percent of it happening again based on what we know already, I guess, but it's very hard to predict. So there's so many, and, and, and the big, if it does turn out, Stephanie, that, that it is, it's all about bats under stress. That's a key consideration. We should change how we're handling the environment and how we're looking after our fellow creatures to stop it happening again, because the risk is very real. In 2007, by the way, there was a compelling study done to say this will happen. In other words, people had predicted it. But again, 
they, 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 he couldn't put a number on the probability of it. So they were ignored, you know. But now that we know it's happened, what, three times now in the past, like 20 years with MERS, SARS, and now SARS-CoV-2, it could easily happen again. And we got to get ready now. And hopefully we learn, won't we, from this one? How would you get ready? Well, remember, um, the other thing to say is the SARS and MERS was easier to put those fires out. Because it wasn't so much people breathing embers, it was dragons everywhere, you know, because that's a good yes, analogy. Yes, they were easier to spot. Oh, you could see the people were infected and they were very sick and they were, all oh, the fire was coming out of them. You could isolate them, you know. This one, it's little embers. You can't even see the damn things that are coming out to, to keep the fire going. So that, that makes it more difficult to predict what might happen next. Again, it absolutely has to be about our doctors in the hospitals looking for people coming in like the Chinese did looking for people coming in with symptoms, noticing the difference, trying to find the virus and isolate it, and then immediate rapid con- uh, isolation and contact tracing in that community really aggressively, you know. Now, remember, they did try that in China. I think the lockdown in China uh, began in January, obviously. But again, because it was so contagious and because there was this asymptomatic spread, they, could, they couldn't put the fire out quickly enough and it began to spread, you know. So now I think the next phase, if, to, to keep an eye on this, sec, first of all, keep, be very careful that respiratory diseases, every doctor looks now for people with d- diseases that look a bit like this, and then rapid you know, rap, rapid uh, uh, um, diagnosis and then contact tracing and all the rest has to be implemented. Secondly, if it starts to spread, that we're ready to react everywhere more quickly with the contact tracing and the testing and the PPEs and the nursing homes and all that stuff. So so we hopefully we'll know what to do the next time much more quickly. Okay. And then finally, today is the 27th of April. It's a Monday. I'm very impressed. You know what day of the week it is, definitely about the date is because <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Time has no meaning. I do in know it's a next, Monday. But I'm asking, do, do you realise it is a, you can sense a Monday, can't you? Because things slow down a bit on a, a Sunday. You can sense a Monday. <laughs> I'm losing the ability to sense a Friday because oh, yes, it feels yes. very much like Saturday. Yeah, I, that's very true. I can sense a Monday and a Tuesday and then after Wednesday afternoon it gets kind of blurry. Do, do you know the main reason I can sense a Sunday? Now, you, you're in this business much longer than me. The journalists stop ringing you on a Sunday. <laughs> it goes a bit quieter, you know? <laughs> yeah. And then they're off again on the Monday. How do you see the next few weeks and months going? What are your hopes? Give us a bit of, give us a bit of something to take us through. (laughs) Well, again, let's start with the data. Remember I said, you know, now my great phrase there, Trump probably is a bit like, remember that movie, show me the money. (laughs) Scientists say, show me the data. So the data at the moment is good because we seem to have decreased the spread of this virus, as you would hope, With as we were discussing earlier. Everybody's locked up, so it should be slowed down a lot. Uh, and that's looking good. They're putting numbers at 0.5, and that's great, you know. That's in the general community, of course. There's still going to be maybe clusters here and there, which we have to be aware of. But the fact is that's come down a lot. That means they have to cut us a bit of slack on the 5th of May. And they have to do that for two reasons. First of all, it's justified based on the data. Secondly, then, we all need a bit of relief, don't we, of some kind. Now, it'll be very slow. It, uh, in New Zealand, you know, the prime minister there says, talks about expand, making the bubble a bit bigger. That's a great analogy. So your yes. bubble at the moment is, is the people you live with in your household. That bubble will now expand to maybe other households that are near you. And you can now start seeing your relatives again and maybe friends and stuff. So, so we'll see a slight increase in the bubble. I hope. Now, again, they'll, they'll be looking at the data in the next couple of weeks. If case numbers go up, Stephanie, which might happen, now let's hope to God they don't, the lockdown will continue. But that's, that doesn't seem to be the case, which is great. 
So based on the data at the moment, if it was now, you'd be saying, Let, let's release some of these measures. Uh, the second thing that might happen is you can go beyond two kilometers. And th there is talk of this, as you've seen in the media. That makes sense. You can travel a bit further, maybe. You know, that's the second thing that might happen. Um, and, and then, and then you know, certain occupations will open up for definite, by the way, because the economy has to begin to come back. And that'll be maybe outdoor stuff. Outdoors is really good, Stephanie. We now know the virus will blow away on the breeze much more effectively. Some of these, remember the super spreader story I told you? Yeah. If you're downwind, you're in trouble. They showed that, by the way. Right, so, okay. Because it blows away on the breeze, it's great. So outdoor stuff will be get, will be a bit more loose there. Construction sites, garden centres, golf courses is a prediction, by the way. They may reopen. They'll keep the clubhouses closed. So a bit of sport for people as a hobby might begin to come back, which is great, you know. Um, if businesses can guarantee social distancing and mask wearing, let's re-emphasize that, then they might be able to open. And that could mean small shops because there aren't that many people in them. In the workplace, if you can guarantee social distancing, clearly hairdressers can't open because you're in direct contact with someone, you know, initially anyway. You might see hairdressers reopen a bit later if, again, with the mask wearing, you know, that might allow that to happen. So, so, but over time, we'll gradually see the lifting of it. Now, if we now fast forward June, July time, the numbers still look great. We're keeping that or not 0.5 or lower. We get more relaxation and we turn into Sweden a bit is the way I would put it, you know. And, right. and the Swedes, of course, have restaurants. They have a bit of social distancing in places as well. But by and large, it's 50% functional, that country, it seems to me, looking at what they're doing there. So, And then eventually you get to July, August, and then we become like China. Because we can follow these countries, you see. They're leading us in a way. Now, if those countries see outbreaks and numbers go up, they go back into lockdown. And then we get what's called the epidemic yo-yo, by the way, which is a well-known phrase in this business, up and down, you know. In other words, the dance begins to get repressed entirely. The hammer comes on again. Too many people on the dance floor. So the hammer, again, has to come down. So, so that's so the fear. I, but, we, but we can watch those countries very close. We're lucky in a way, if I, if, if I can call it luck. I mean, it's desperate here, of course, as we know. But we can follow those countries and see if their measures are now beginning to work, you see. So then it, gradually you get the thing opening. And then, and then very importantly, if we see a medical breakthrough, which we're all keeping fingers and toes crossed for, like that could be an antiviral. It could be an anti-inflammatory, by the way. There, there, there's great optimism there because they stop the damage in the lungs and keep people alive. And again, there's optimism around those. We should know in four, six, eight weeks if those are working. Now, that means a different landscape entirely because if people do get sick, we can look after them, you see. And that justifies a further loosening. And if all this happens, by the time you get to September, October, we're not quite back to normal, but we're heading in that direction. Things are much better by September, you see, and, th and that's the vista that we have in front of us. I can't, th there'll be no major sporting events or big gatherings and sadly no pubs and those sorts of things, not till next year. And of course, the publicans, we have to have sympathy for them as well. If they could introduce, I mean, there is talk, for instance, of beer gardens, possibly, or there will be more pressure for that to happen. And again, you've got to be looking at data to see if that's feasible, you know. Because if people yeah. drink, they're going to interact more and that increases risk of spread. So, so these are all the considerations. But that, that's what I've just said there is, is one likely scenario that they're now facing into. OK, well, maybe we'll check back in with you in September to see where we're at. <laughs> uh, by the week, Stephanie, it's, it's changing all the time. It's incredible. Like I, I changed my own opinion on masks in the past couple of weeks because of all this data that came out, you know. So, again, yes. we're going to see more and more data and let's hope it's in the right direction. And I'm optimistic. Well, I mean... As I said, I've said several times, you can't believe the number of scientists working on this now. I mean, the whole world is behind this massive effort. The answer will come from science, remember. 
And and again, we're optimistic because of all this massive work and massive uh, promise that's in some of these studies that are underway as we speak. Well, I remember being in Irish college and it was never the science kids that I wanted to get onto the Kaylee dance floor with. But for the first <laughs> time ever, science is looking very attractive and scientists are who I want to have around me. Yeah, I believe it's called um, Revenge of the Nerds, you know. Revenge of the Nerds. <laughs> Luke O'Neill, thank you so much. We might check back in with you in, uh, as the data changes um, yep. to get some updates. But thank you so very no much. No problem, Stephanie. Always happy to talk. If you are still listening, then you made it to the end of the very first Basically podcast. And... For that, I thank you very, very much. I would be even more grateful if you would share the podcast if you enjoyed it, uh, rate it and review it on iTunes. That helps us to get up further in the charts and helps more people to find the podcast. So you could share it on your Instagram. If you have any feedback or any questions, you can get in touch with me on Twitter at Steph Preisner or on Instagram at Stephanie Preisner. And that's Steph with an F. Our music was brought to you by Only Ruin. Our graphic design and artwork is by Kahal O'Gara. And this podcast was produced by the Head Stuff Podcast Network. See you next week. This podcast is part of the Head Stuff Podcast Network.